Good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Bethany at all of our locations. I'm happy to be able to share with you this morning. By the time you're looking at this, Lord willing, I'll be in Switzerland actually teaching. And uh, so I'm asking prayer because I have a very busy week. 17 lectures, actually, over the course of the week. So I'll be in a very beautiful place. And yet, I'll be teaching most of the time. So appreciate your prayers in that. And then as we look at the text this morning, I really wanted to share this with you because of this little phrase that Eugene Peterson articulates so beautifully, the unforced rhythms of grace. And so please join me. We'll take a minute. We'll pray together. And then we'll look at what God has to say about those rhythms of grace as we look at Psalm 23, especially verse 2 this morning. Let's pray. Father, we'd like to thank you that as we gather here to listen for your voice, you are a good shepherd and you desire to feed us and nourish us and nurture us in order that we might continually be refilled so that we can live into the purpose for which we're created. So my prayer is that you teach us now, Father, through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, and we'll thank you for that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. There's uh, three words that captured my attention in the message version of Matthew 11. Jesus is offering this invitation, and he says, are you tired? Are you hungry? Are you thirsty? And of course, these are three physical realities that show up in all of our lives on a day-to-day basis. We get tired, we get hungry, we get thirsty. But they're more than physical realities because it's also true that there's kind of an emotional, psychological, spiritual tiredness, hunger, and thirst that can happen. We get tired of work. Sometimes we get tired of our relationship with God. We get tired of particular relationships. We get hungry and thirsty for meaning, for intimacy, for hope, for joy. And if we don't find a way to quench those non-physical hungers and thirsts, our lives will dry up. And a dried up life is something none of us want. George Bernard Shaw articulates so powerfully, in my opinion, this, this notion of a life that never dries up, and this is what he writes. He says, this is the true joy in life, being used for a purpose recognized as a mighty one, being a force of nature instead of a feverish, selfish little clot of ailments and grievances complaining that the world will not devote itself to making you happy. I'm of the opinion that my life belongs to the whole community. And as long as I live, it's my privilege to serve the community in whatever way I can. My life is a sort of splendid torch, which I must hold up for the moment, and I want to make it burn as brightly as possible every day before handing it on to a future generation. I just think that is a beautiful sentiment that Shaw articulates here, a marvelous ideal. And most of us in the room recognize that we are at our best when we live lives serving other people, poured out rather than lives of self-indulgence. So we all agree there. We all would love to envision ourselves serving, loving, caring, giving, celebrating to the very end. It's a great vision. But it's actually very hard to do because serving and creating and loving and giving require energy. And if I don't fill the tank adequately and with that which is life-giving, over time, my life drains. So if I drink and don't refill, drink and don't refill, drink and don't don't refill, eventually my cup will be empty and then I will begin to suffer the effects of dehydration. And this happens not only physically, but certainly it happens uh, spiritually as well. So the good news of the gospel 
is that the God who created us has offered us a path whereby our cup can be continually filled so that our faith and joy and service and hospitality and commitment to justice can continue to the very end of our days. And this path, of course, requires what Eugene Peterson articulates in his translation of Matthew 11. It requires the unforced rhythms of grace, which are really rhythms of, of movement and rest, movement and rest. When, if you ever read Psalm 123, there's this beautiful articulation there in this, in this passage about creation, about how uh, we who are creatures of the day get up in the morning, we go about, we do our work, and when the sun goes down at night, we're tired, and we go to bed, and then when we go to bed, as some of you know, if you go camping, there's a whole another group of people, or not people, but <laughs> creatures, there's another group of creatures, and they get up in the night, and they do what they do. They roam around, and they eat, and they forage, and then when the sun comes up, they go down. But all of created life has this rhythm of movement and rest, movement and rest, movement and rest. And so that's kind of what we want to see in this passage, Psalm 23, 2, David offering us three observations regarding this rhythm of movement and rest that's so vital to life if our life of joy and service is to be sustainable to the, to the, to the very end. And so here's the first observation. It's very simple. We need rest. Psalm 23, verse 2, says it this way. Uh, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Now, we could translate that. It's an invitation to lie down. He provides the conditions whereby I can lie down. And he leads me beside water where I'll stop and rest and, and receive a drink as well. But for now, he, he makes me lie down. So we need rest. And we all know it. This is a given in our culture. We live in a culture that runs actually short on rest. I think most of you would agree with that. How often do you hear this phrase when you greet somebody by saying, how, how you doing? How often do you hear this? I'm too busy. Does anyone ever hear this? I mean, does anyone ever say this? This is often our experience. We live in kind of this constant violation of God's natural rhythms, even to the point where saying I'm too busy becomes in a work culture like ours a badge of honor. So, so the result of this, just physiologically, is that we live in a sleep-deprived culture. Uh, about 35% of people say that they get less than seven hours of sleep a night, and less than seven hours of sleep a night means that you're kind of compromising your immune system and your heart and your cardiovascular system and your memory and your, and your capacity to think, think with clarity and your objectivity. All that stuff goes out the window if you don't sleep enough, and we don't sleep enough. Excess light, excess work, and excess worry are the three main reasons given for our lack of sleep. And if you go back to the very beginning, you see that God's vision for us was to create an environment whereby it would just be natural that we'd have these rhythms of movement and rest. So all the way back in Genesis, you see it over and over again, actually uh, six times in Genesis chapter one, there was evening and morning a day. Evening and morning a second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day. So this pattern of evening and morning happens over and over again, and this becomes the framing pattern for the rhythm of work and rest that's built into creation. And then, and then there's this, we see from that that there's this rest that's built into the world even before the fall, which says to us then, it was always in God's heart that we live into this rhythm of, of work and rest. Rest isn't something that we need because we're fallen. 
Rest is something that God built into us even before the fall and built it into all of creation. So it's, it's kind of God's ongoing care for us that after the fall, God continues to make provision for rest. Not only through day and night, but when you come to the book of Exodus, God introduces this notion of a Sabbath day, right? The seventh day, which uh, actually mirrors what God did when God created in six days. And then on the seventh day, we read God rested. So in Exodus 16, when God is providing manna for Israel in the wilderness, God says to Israel in the wilderness, look, on the sixth day, gather what? Twice as much manna. Because on the seventh day, there won't be any. Why? Because that day will be for you a gift, a Sabbath. You don't have to go out and gather. So God provides that there, even before God provides the law. But when the law shows up, Exodus chapter 20, the command of the Ten Commands that is most fully developed is this one about the Sabbath. This, it, it gets four verses in the Ten Commandments, and most of the other commandments only get one verse. And this, this commandment gets four verses because God makes, he goes to great length to say, everyone needs to rest, right? Not only the Jews, but the foreigners. Not only the old, but the young. Not only the rich, but the poor. Not only the people, but the animals. Not only the free, but the slaves. Everyone. This is a gift for all of creation, including the animals, says God. God takes it seriously, Right? And then he builds these other days into the life of Israel as a testimony that were made for this uh, rhythm of movement and rest. He builds the seventh year, which is the sabbatical year. He builds the year of Jubilee into this, which is every 50th year. And all land returns to its original owners and all debts are forgiven. All of these are ways of hitting a reset button, a, a way of restoring. And we, in our own culture, carry some of these holdovers from God's Sabbath plan into our contemporary Western culture. Particularly when I travel in Europe, it's fascinating to me that on Sunday, in most places, stores are still closed. You arrive in a town on a, on a Saturday night, you better shop that night because the next day, the grocery stores are even closed. There's just nowhere to go to get food. And this is a holdover from this notion so that we have this, this day off and we have vacation days and we have holidays all intended to build into our own lives this rhythm of work and rest, Right? Now, all of that is physical, but when you get to the New Testament, there's a New Testament counterpart to this Old Testament call to physical rest. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1 says this, let's fear lest while a promise of entering God's rest remains, any one of us should seem to have come short of it. In other words, God is inviting all of us not only to a physiological rest, but to a spiritual rest. And God is saying, look, I've told you over and over again, actually 365 times in the Bible, I've told you don't fear, don't fear, don't fear, don't fear. Now, now in this case, Hebrews 4, verse 1, I'm telling you, fear this. Fear what? Fear missing the rest for which you're created. It's the one thing God wants for you because without that rest, your life of joy and hope and peace and mercy is unsustainable. This is the rest you need. And this rest, as you unpack it in Hebrews 4, uh, you begin to see that it comes from this inward submission to Christ whereby you're now living in relationship with Christ in the same manner in which Christ lived in relationship with the Father. And so when Jesus was on this earth, like he, he could sleep in a boat when there was a storm because he was profoundly at rest. And the reason he was at rest is because he knew that everything that he did and thought, all his judgment, his time, his plans, they were all submitted to the will of God. 
And so it's, it's like, if I don't have any plans, I'm at rest because all I am now is available so that God the Father can express whatever God wants to express through me. And that leads to rest, and that is the rest that we need. So we need rest, physiologically, and not just physiologically, but spiritually. And in Romans 8, it says that when our spirit is revived, our mortal bodies are also revived. So if I can enter into spiritual rest, get this, I sleep better. <laughs> and if I sleep better, that actually provides conditions for better spiritual rest. So this is an ecosystem, and this is why we talk about both of them. But now when we come to the observation, uh, after, after seeing, yeah, we need rest, we come to this second observation, God provides conditions for rest. We begin to see there from Psalm 23 how much we are like sheep. Because one shepherd writing about the 23rd Psalm says this, it is impossible to make sheep lie down and rest unless there are four conditions that are met. These are, these are great. Number one, sheep must be free from all fear. Like a sheep will not sleep if they're afraid. In our teaching team meeting, someone was sharing a story. They knew someone who was with a flock of sheep, a shepherd, and he, and I don't know if the shepherd did this or someone else, but they came up behind a sheep and they clapped their hands. The sheep died of a heart attack. Sheep are that anxious. They're, they're that kind of fear-based, that prone to anxiety. Uh, and so if they're lacking any sense of security, they, they won't go to sleep. So, so, so they need to be free from fear. They need to be free from relational friction with other sheep. That's not just a human problem. It's a problem with sheep. And if the sheep are getting along, they don't sleep. They need to be free from flies, ticks, and parasites. And finally, number four, and most cogent for our time together today, they must be free from hunger and thirst. They won't go to, they won't go to sleep if they're hungry or thirsty. So, now what does God provide? Two things. God, in, this, in this text, Psalm 23, 2, God provides pasture, that's land where they can eat and rest, and God provides water. So we'll look at these uh, briefly. First, let's look at pasture. The shepherd guides sheep to green pastures. Why? Uh, so that they can eat there in the green pastures, and then so that they can lie down. Now, of course, as most of you know, the Middle East is very different than the, than the Northwest. Like, it's very, very dry. And because it's dry, uh, sheep have to travel a great distance to find green pasture, to find adequate land. In fact, uh, one shepherd says that it's not uncommon for shepherds to travel up to 1,500 miles a year with their sheep. So they're, they're in a tent and they're traveling and they're always on, on search for this adequate pasture land so the sheep can be fed so that the sheep can rest. So the thing to see here is the good shepherd is completely committed to finding food for the sheep. He's leading the sheep. You can kind of picture uh, the, 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 the shepherd roaming through an arid desert land in search of the green and leading the sheep to the green. That's what the shepherd does. So he's always committed to finding this abundant food for the sheep. Now, when you come to the scriptures, you see God's promise to Israel was that he would bring them out of slavery, but not just out of slavery. He would lead them into this land, quote unquote, flowing with milk and honey, which is God's way of saying, listen, I'm going to lead you to a land where there will always be enough, where you will find the kind of satisfaction that leads to rest, right? And so uh, in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11, if you've ever heard Handel's Messiah, you, you, you know that this is one of the texts used in Handel's Messiah. He shall feed his flock like what? 
like a shepherd. He'll feed his flock like a shepherd, Isaiah 40, 11, and, and Handel brilliantly, in my opinion, couples that. It's in the same song with Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and weighed down with burdens, heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Because listen, if I don't have the food, I can't have the rest. Does that make sense? I must have the food to have the rest. So he leads them to food so that they can eat. And once they eat, they're content. And once they're content, they rest. And what we discover is this remarkable uh, truth that is only seen when we consider these two passages together. Prior to Christ, you had a shepherd who would guide the sheep to food. But in Christ, Christ is, in this mysterious way in the New Testament, he's both the shepherd and what? He's both the shepherd and the sheep, right? Uh, when Jesus shows up and for the, is, the, is for the first time publicly displayed as Messiah, what does John the Baptist say? Behold the good shepherd. No. Remember? Behold what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so we, this is marvelous to me that we come to this moment here where we see that Jesus is both shepherd and sheep and then we come to see that he's even the food for the sheep, right? Because then in John chapter 6, the shepherd, who is also the sheep, calls himself the bread that the sheep who are Israel are invited to eat. So gee, I'm going to read this, John chapter 6, uh, verses 31 to 35, it's because it's so significant to see this kind of mystery that Jesus is shepherd, Jesus is, is sheep, is a lamb, a sacrificial lamb, and Jesus is the food for his flock, right? So John chapter 6, verse uh, uh, 31 or so, it reads this way. Jesus speaking, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. He gave them bread to eat. But then Jesus says, truly I say to you, it wasn't Moses who gave you that bread, but my father gave you that bread. And, and the bread of God is that bread which comes out of heaven and gives life to the world. And then Israel, listening to Jesus, they say, oh, we want that bread because Jesus had just said, if you eat this bread, you'll never hunger, ever. It's like this continual store of life. Oh, that's the bread we want. And then off the map radical, what does Jesus say? I am that bread. I'm that bread. In other words, if you eat of me, you will have life. Now, the group to which Jesus was speaking was not that poetic. And so they were really struggling with this. Really, he wants us to eat his flesh? Like, what does that mean? We'll get to that in a moment. But it's significant here that what we see is a shepherd inviting us to himself to feed on himself, if I can say it that way. And when we try and apply this, sometimes... We superficially apply it this way. We say, yeah, that means you've got to go to Bible study. And I would say to you, yes, Bible study is very, very important. It's foundational. But hear me when I say that it's only a foundation. Because what I need is not a, a head filled with kind of intellectual assent of various truths in the Bible. To feed on Christ means that I'm experiencing a union with Christ. Jesus, in fact, indicted the Pharisees 
for excessive dependence on Bible study. John 5, 39. Jesus says to them, you, you search the scriptures because you think that in the scriptures you have eternal life and the scriptures point to me, but you're unwilling to come to me that you might have life. You want scripture, you want text, you want precepts, you want ideologies, you want a moral construct, you want a code, you want a philosophy. Not enough. What will only give you rest is union with Christ. And this, to be blunt, gets mystical and very hard for evangelicals and hard for an ed educated congregation like our own because we tend to equate filling out notebooks with maturity when we're really invited to union with Christ. And this experience of union comes when the posture of the heart is a posture of submission. And I'll talk about that at the end. Just place it there as a placeholder for now. So, so when summing up pasture, when Jesus says, look, uh, I've come to feed you. What he's giving people to eat is his life. So for us, we have this abundance story and this tremendous promise. If I learn to feed on Christ, don't you love this? I will never hunger. Man, I'm in. Now I need to learn how to do that and we'll get there. But that's a tremendous promise. So that's where we begin, this, this, this learning to feed on Christ. And, we, and we'll come to see that, that feeding on Christ will require of us a willing surrender. And in reality, surrender to our Creator is precisely the, the only posture in which I can feed on Christ and find a, a, a place of rest. I can only feed on Christ when I'm surrendered in the same way that Christ was surrendered to the Father. I'm old enough... To, to have years ago watched a music video by this guy named Stephen Curtis Chapman. Have any of you heard of him in the room? So some of you have heard of this guy. And he had this, he had this music video. It's so touching uh, because the song is called Heaven in the Real World. And it's a, it's a, it's a video of a little, little boy. And the little boy's in black and white. And, and he has all this armor on. And there's this kind of community and he walks by and he peers in the fence and inside it, it's not black and white, it's color and, the, and there's no armor inside and kids are playing, there's you know, flowers falling from the sky. It's just like this idyllic heavenly state and what Chapman is trying to say is that state is available in this real world. Like we, we can live into that now, but the only way to do it for the kid to go into that fence, what do you need to do? He need to take off his armor. And live now not in a posture of defensiveness and control like this is my life and I'm going to protect myself and build my life. No, in a state of vulnerability, he walks and he becomes like a child and now he's with all these other children. It's really beautiful. So, so this is this posture of dependency that enables us to learn how to feast on Christ. Then the next thing that we see is water right? He, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. And of course, in the desert, water's ridiculously important, but it's important all the time. For we who live here in the Northwest, doesn't matter where you live, if you're a human, 60% of your body is water. In fact, I'm thirsty just talking about it, so pardon me while I drink. And if you're a sheep, 70% of your body is water. A lot of water, right? So the testimony of the Bible is that God is the author of life, will always provide everything we need to live the life for which we're created, right? Uh, and, and, and so this commitment to provision is seen here 
in God's commitment to bring water to the one, the, one of the driest environments in the world. So when Israel, for example, is delivered out of slavery in Egypt, for 40 years they're led through a desert. And what we know from reading Deuteronomy chapter 8 is that whenever they were thirsty, what did God provide? Always water, water in the desert. Exodus 16 is a, like a story of that. The first time they were thirsty, a rock, Moses hits it, water springs right out of a rock. In, in a culture that doesn't have indoor water on tap, which is 99% of world history, wells were the common means of getting water and sometimes streams. And this meant that it, like for me to get water, I need continually to return to the source day after day after day. And if any of you have traveled in developing countries, you know this. Uh, the work that we uh, did with living water in Uganda, we would put a well in a community, and then the school children would bring these big buckets to school, and then they'd go to the well, and they'd pump the well, and then they'd carry their water two, three, four miles back to their, back to their houses. So there's this need to continually return, Right? And that becomes a backdrop for a marvelous water story. John chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus, having gone out of his way to engage with this woman, he, Jesus says to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food, and, and the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you being a Jew ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan? That's its own sermon. We don't have time for that this morning. But, but just for a minute here, let me say it this way. We'll, we'll continue. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and the one who, who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would ask me and I would have given you living water. Living water. And then Jesus goes on and he says in verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will never thirst again. That's remarkable. So Jesus is offering a woman water, and he says to her, listen, if you, if you drink from this cup, like if you drink this water, you will never thirst again. And of course, she, like the, like the bread people in John chapter 6, is in the moment thinking literally, right? And she's like this, wow, that'd be awesome. I wouldn't, I, would, I wouldn't have to come back to this well every day, right? Give me this water. And then Jesus uses her physical thirst to point her to an even deeper reality, the notion that Jesus articulates in John chapter 7, which is this, if anyone is thirsty and comes to me from his belly will burst forth rivers of living water. This is remarkable. So that what I love about what Jesus says in John 7 and what he articulates in John 4 is this. In, in, in both cases, he's using thirst as a presenting issue, but he, his promise is greater than merely quenching the thirst. Does, does that make sense? In other words, yeah, oh, you're thirsty? Great, come to me and I will give you a water in the case of John 4, that will, be, that will so profoundly satisfy you, you'll never thirst again. In the case of John 7, are you thirsty? Yeah, come to me. Not only will I fill your cup, right? 800 milliliters. Not only will I fill your cup, from your belly will burst forth rivers of living water. Like I came because I was thirsty, and it's not just that my thirst was quenched, it's that now I have the capacity in me to bless others with excess water that God has given me. And now I'm able to live that life that George Bernard Shaw articulated at the beginning of the sermon, a life where my torch is continuing to, to, to burn brightly till I'm 95 years old. Why? Living water, that's why. But what, what caused me to drink 
wasn't a desire to be this amazing person. What, does, what caused me to drink was thirst, like a need. I came needy. Jesus didn't just meet my need, but the profound power of the gospel is this. He meets my need and then so fills me to overflowing that I became a person capable of blessing others. It's amazing, actually. So this becomes the beauty of the gospel. Why? Because all of us are needy, every one of us in the room. We have longings for meaning, intimacy, healing, freedom, hope, security, joy. And so it's often the case that driven by need, we come to Christ. Like all we want is our need to be met. So we're, like we're thirsty, and we come to Christ the way a thirsty person comes to water. But the promise here of Jesus in John 7 is that those who come because of thirst, those who come to have their cup filled, so to speak, will have more than their cup filled. They will receive this eternal source of living water that will arise from deep within them, blessing a very thirsty world. So I should have brought like a squirt gun or something this morning. It would have been so fun just to kind of squirt everybody and go, I mean, I've got more than enough. And if you're thirsty... I can serve. That's the church. That's what we're called to be. Like this river kind of flowing through the parched land that is Seattle. Parched through loneliness, through boredom, through materialism, through individualism, through addiction. And, and, and God hasn't just met our needs. He's so filled us that, that we're able then to go out into the world and, and serve. So the moral of the story here is this. Listen, if you're thirsty, follow your, th like obey your thirst. Follow your thirst. Why? Because that thirst will bring you to Christ and Christ will not just quench your thirst. Christ will transform you and you'll become a river. Tremendous message. So when you look at gun violence or, or the silencing and marginalization of women or the Me Too movement or the marginalization of blacks or the degradation of the environment, or when you look at your own heart and you see within your heart fear or failure or, or addiction or boredom, I mean this, I'm not exaggerating, for God's sake, don't make peace with that thirst. Do, do you understand? Like, don't say, well, that's just the way it is. Yeah, well, it's a broken world, whatever. I'm a broken person, whatever. No, your thirst is intended by God to bring you to Christ more deeply, more fully. And it's in that moment of profound thirst that Christ so fills you that you are transformed. So the longings that are deep in your heart to see the world different, to see your marriage different, to see yourself different, those are good longings. Follow your thirst. So we've seen a couple of things so far. God, we need rest. God provides conditions for rest. The condition of pasture land, the condition of water. And here's the last thing we see. Movement is required to achieve rest. In other words, when you read these scriptures, uh, twice you see it. He leads me beside still waters. And he makes me lie down in green pastures. And both of these imply movement, right? So if you look, at, if you look through some of the stories we've considered this morning and a few other stories, you see that the people who ultimately had their cup filled in the scriptures were people who when Christ invited, they moved. They moved to Christ. Um, the woman at the well was one who moved to Christ. There was this guy, Zacchaeus, he was a tax collector. And uh, he throws a party for Jesus, and when, when he meets Jesus, 
He changes his life, and the change in his life, his, his change of financial ethics, is kind of the presenting door through which he walks. He's moving toward Jesus. Joshua and Caleb in the Old Testament, moving toward Jesus. Peter, leaving his nets, moving toward Jesus. So, so there are examples all through the Bible of people who, like there's this moment and I either move toward the call or I don't. And when I don't move, then the, the, the water and pasture available, the conditions for rest, not only of body but of soul, when I don't move, I can't drink. I can't eat. And now I'm, I remain thirsty. So I must, when God has called me, I must move. And, you know, the great example uh, uh, that stands in contrast to this is in John chapter 6, Jesus has multiplied some loaves uh, and, and uh, fed 5,000 people miraculously. People are following him. But uh, he says to them, listen, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. And what he's saying in articulating that is, uh, I'm not here just to fix your problems. I'm calling you to this, to this place of union with me. I'm calling you to feast upon me, like to so partake of my life that my life becomes intermingled with your life, that my, that my uh, very resurrected being begins to be woven in the fabric of your personality. Like that's the calling. So you have to feast on Christ. And it says then, John 666, like John 666, from that moment on, it says, many were no longer walking with him. Yeah, I'll come, yeah, a little bit of Jesus, fine. No, no worries. Yeah, come Sunday, sing a bit, it's all good. But, oh wait, like total surrender? No thanks. I, I, actually, I'm not interested in that. I just want Jesus to fix my particular problem. L listen, Jesus, I don't want to become a river. I, I, all I need is 800 milliliters. And what Jesus is saying is that is not on the table as an offer, ever. I didn't just come to meet your need. I came to transform you. And if you don't want transformation, it's not discipleship. It's, it's not the Christian life. So, so Jesus here uh, calls people and says, from that moment on, many no longer walked with him. So here's a reality check as we bring this thing to a close. In spite of provision made by God for rest, the truth of the story is we still resist moving toward Christ. Like the only way I can rest is to, is to I need the water and the pasture land. I can't get there without moving. Jesus is there. He's saying, follow me, and I don't. And so here's a question on the table, the closing question. Why do I resist rest? And I'll tell you why. Rest is a place of vulnerability. Do you realize that? You may not know this. Uh, if you're a doctor, especially if you study sleep, you, you do know this. Sleep is a condition where, like, where the nervous system is inactive and, and your muscles are relaxed and your consciousness is nearly suspended. It's the closest thing to death you will ever experience short of dying is when you're in deep sleep. And like if you're a control freak... That's terrifying. Because when you're asleep, what are you when you're asleep? You are what? Vulnerable. You're vulnerable when you're asleep. Like, this is why the sheep had a hard time sleeping in, if, they, if they had any anxiety. And this is why some of us in the room have a hard time sleeping when we have anxiety. Because there's something out of our control, and, we, and we're terrified to have something out of our control. We want control. This loss of control. Protection is out of my hands. Provision is out of my hands. I don't like that. 
No, thanks, Jesus. You know, I want to write my own story. I want to determine my income. I want to determine my vocational path. I want to determine my, 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 my upward mobility. I want to climb the corporate ladder in my time, my way. No. <laughs> like there's a rest available, but it requires a posture of submission. And so really interesting, uh, we, we begin by talking about fullness, uh, the, the fullness that we receive of water, of, of food, and, and we'll close here in a minute with fullness as well. But the fullness is available to those who sign on as servants. And the best example of someone like kind of wanting to live in a state of like ongoing vulnerability, the best example that I can find is uh, w- what are called in the Old Testament bond servants, bond, or bond slaves, we could even say. So let me explain what a bond slave was in the Old Testament. The law in the Old Testament required that if you were a slave or servant, you were treated with justice, and at the end of six years, you were free. You were set free. But there's also in the law this amazing option that if you're at the end of six years due to be released and you you can be a free man, right? If you love your master and your master has treated you well, and you're grateful for the way you've been treated, and you would prefer the safety of service to your master rather than controlling your own life, then you can go to that master and become a bond slave. And in that case, you're not signing up for another six-year stint. If you become a bond slave, hear me, lifelong commitment. And... Yeah, you're surrendering yourself entirely to this master. You're giving up all your rights, all your freedom permanently, and you're saying, I want to serve you, and I want to become, in other words, as a servant, I want to become part of your household. And so the, 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 the nature of the servant's new relationship to his master would be no secret because the transaction was made in a public ceremony where you'd take this sharp instrument and you'd pierce this guy's ear. And so he would have a hole in his ear, this ear-piercing ceremony, that is like this physical picture. He's, now he is, for the rest of his life, a servant to this good master. Isn't that interesting? Now, what does that have to do with the Christian life? Well, David, Psalm 40, verse 6, this is what he says. He says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, O Lord. My ear you have pierced. That's David. What is he saying? This is what he's saying. God, I'm so in love with you, so secure in your provision, in your direction, in your protection, that I don't want to go anywhere else. I want to serve you the rest of my days. Remember what I said, John 6, 66? From that day on, many no longer walked with Jesus. Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, hey, do you guys want to be free too? You can be free. No problem. You want to leave? What does Peter say? Do you remember? Where else are we going to go? You are life. You have the words. In other words, Peter is saying the same thing that David is saying in Psalm 46, the same thing that all of us are invited to say this morning, my ear you have pierced. Like I'm going to rest now. Why? Because I'm in a safe house. Not my house, Christ's. Not my will, Christ's. Not my time, my authority, my plans, Christ's. And here's the greatest punchline of all. 
Jesus then says to we who have decided to be his servants, John 15, 5, I no longer call you servants, but what? Friends. Wow. I began as a servant, and now I'm a friend. And not just a friend, a brother, and not just a brother, Romans 8, a son. So that John said under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in verse 16 of chapter 1, of his fullness, Christ's fullness, we have all received. Green grass, abundant living water. Where else will you go to find those words of life? We're going to close uh, by meditating simply on Psalm 1 and 2. And so on your inhale, the Lord is my shepherd. On your exhale, I lack nothing. On your inhale, he leads me beside still waters. Uh, Excuse me. On your inhale, he makes me lie down in green pastures. On your exhale, he leads me beside still waters. And then we worship together. Let's pray.